0: Welcome everybody, and I want to welcome and say hello to those of you from IMT, as well as anybody who's here from my more dispersed Luminous Mind Sangha. Okay, so tonight is the last of uh, my series of talks on embodiment, and I really enjoyed doing this. It's I've gotten a lot of good feedback. I've also been doing some of these talks on, on the InnerCraft platform and um, it's been really fun because there aren't a lot of talks on embodiment discovered. So um, at some point I'll be doing these again but probably not for a few years. So um, this last talk is on, uh, the last talk on personality and uh, Buddhist psychology and the Enneagram part two. So just so I have a sense of of who was here last month when I talked about the Enneagram. Okay, so maybe, maybe half the group. Um, So I'll just do a short refresher on that, just to kind of bring us up to date. And then I'll talk about the things I didn't have time to about the Enneagram, uh, that are a little bit more sophisticated sort of ways to work with and understand uh, the anagram. And, and really this, to me, this is part of working with the personality um, as talked about by Bhikkhu Bodhi and the Buddha, actually. I mean, the Buddha had in Buddha psychology, the original, you know, he did really well for his, his time having this original understanding of the three core um, patterns personality patterns and um, last time I, I pointed us all to an article from Bhikkhu Bodhi called taking stock of oneself if you want to look it up it's it's a free article I think it might be on access to insight and he really encouraged practitioners to do this as part of our practice to, to understand the um, our personality patterning, basically. He says that transcending isn't enough and we really want to, you know, we want to uh, be able to digest personality patterns in traditional, not only Buddhism, but pretty much every tradition that comes from historical times. They used renunciation as the main way of, you know, working with some of the more difficult human tendencies And now we're so lucky that we have psychology in the last hundred years to add to what we've learned from the spiritual traditions, from Buddhism to really like get mechanically, how is the psyche structured? And um, so the Enneagram is also uh, an ancient, it may not be as ancient um, tool. It's a tool that isn't a spiritual path, but it's useful on the spiritual path. So if we look at at Buddhism, really what the Buddha identified is the three, what he called defilements. It's not the most positive term. I like to put the term personality patterns on there instead of defilements. But there, there are patterns that keep us from our deeper nature. So in that way, I guess defilements is an appropriate word. And those are desire, aversion and delusion so you know are we the and we all have all three but sometimes the person will lean more towards a particular one sometimes it's hard to tell but are we the kind of person who really gets into a lot of um you know patterning and maybe suffering from wanting things uh is it more from wanting things to go away or or fear is also in the aversion category. And then delusion is really a kind of falling asleep on ourselves. Do we know that we should be or want to be doing things, but we just don't, where there's a kind of confused quality to delusion that is part of that. And um, so that's how the Buddha saw it and we also have the hindrances which expand on that a little bit but the defilements are really more the core patterns that the that are beyond circumstances and and um and situations and it's kind of wherever you go there you are that's that's the defilement patterns that even when we're say practicing deeply these will still come up and they'll try and keep reasserting themselves. So. Um, so that's how it's seen in Buddhism. And then the Enneagram, and I'll just, I'll just show you the diagram again, you can find this anywhere on the internet. The Enneagram is represented by this diagram of which you can see in the middle, there's a triangle. And that triangle basically is the equivalent of the defilements. So at the top, the, the core um, pattern, that really takes us away from our deeper nature is delusion. So that's an Enneagram point nine. And then we have here point six, which is more the aversion corner. And here we have desire. And the way it's understood in the Enneagram is that I'll just give you a snippet of that turn away from the grounded being. The first thing that happens is we you know, basically consciousness comes in and becomes identified with the body as an infant. An infant doesn't doesn't, um, have a separate me. They're basically in a dual unity with the caregiver. But uh, over time, as the infant needs things, food, or or doesn't want things, their diapers changed and it's uncomfortable, Um, all the good stuff, all the solutions come from the outside. And so they start seeing this sense of other. And then, as the child starts having language and so on, that um, sense of otherness, you can see like a two year old if you say to a two year old, I'm going to the store, they don't know what you mean. That's why you have to say, Mommy's going to the store, you know, so they know you're talking about someone else. And then around the terrible twos, and then they start being able to say, I, you know, me do it, that kind of thing. That's when they're starting to get a separate sense of self. And um, uh, that's really when the me starts forming. But they also start seeing that they're not omnipotent, that, you know, we all went through this, of course. And that's when at this point six, fear, some fear starts coming up that oh my gosh, I can actually fall down and get hurt. And, you know, mom's not here, dad's not here. I'm alone, you know, that's like really, really scary. And so then we, and this is archetypal for all humans, we go over to three, which is I have to do it. I have to solve it. I am I need to take care of myself and we become sort of the, the king or queen of our own world. And really that's when the ego gets pretty much solidified by the age of like eight or ten maybe even younger than that um, really it's the superego that gets solidified by that age. so this is this is how the inner triangle of the Enneagram works and um, and it's a journey that we all take and we can see that Buddhism has the same three, core patterns that the Enneagram has, but what the Enneagram has is, is it breaks it down basically into nine core ways that we turn away from the ground of being. And um, it's kind of like self views and worldviews that we take on and through the Enneagram, there's the potential of using this sort of shortcut to um, See the water we're swimming in. So that's part of it is that we get so used to our personality pattern and that way of seeing who and what we are in the world and how we're going to get safe, basically, in this turning away from being each enneotype has certain ways that it thinks it's searching for to Feel safe and secure in the world, and because these are all egoic, you know, even if we find these things, ultimately it's not enough because the ego is just a doing machine. You know, even when it finds what it's looking for, it has to then be satisfied for a short time and then do more because it's basically a doing machine. You know, it's it's not um, uh, it's a perpetual motion machine until we really see through a lot of that automatic programming. So um, the history of the Enneagram, just just to be, you know, go back to that briefly, the Enneagram comes from a spiritual school, it's kind of shrouded in mystery, but I'll tell you what I know and have heard and believe is that it came from a mystery school um, that originated in the Middle East called the Sarmoon Brotherhood or the White Brotherhood. And um, it was a secret mystery school and um, Gurdjieff was the one who was, he was in that as a student and then was a teacher, Gurdjieff, who's fairly modern. And um, he was the first to really talk about the Enneagram publicly. And then uh, Oscar Ichazo, who is from a school called Eureka, started talking about it. And also, oh wait, I missed somebody, Claudio Naranjo. Yeah, I think I think Claudio and Oscar and then um, Hamid Ali, who founded the Diamond Approach, was also in there and they started, they each kind of went in in their own directions and started teaching it. And it started becoming more known in the public and then people like Helen Palmer and Sandra Maitrey, Sandra Maitrey is the one that I learned it from. um, They went to another level and started writing books that became very popular and so on so there's the enneagrams had its own um trajectory but uh, it's moved away most most of what you see in in the pop you know popular books it's moved into more of a typology um and a lot of times people use it to just become more entrenched in their egoic patterns. Like I'm a this, you know, I'm I'm a three, I'm a two. And um, it, they're not necessarily using it to free themselves from the ego. So it's in some ways become the opposite of what it was intended for. Um, so I don't see using it that way. If one is going to use it really as a spiritual tool, it's used for uns understanding and insight but then liberating oneself from the patterns which is really what buddhism is about so um if you use the enneagram and explore it at all it's important to just keep that in mind and also be selective about whose books you read on the enneagram because some of them are more inclined to reinforce the personality patterning and some are more inclined to to point one towards freeing oneself from the patterning. And I like books by um, Rizzo and Hudson. They also have online workshops on the Enneagram uh, as well as Sandra Matry. And then Hamid Ali, his book is really about more the transcendent uh, ground of being manifestations of the Enneagram, but it's a very uh, deep book, very deep book. So let's see, anything else I want to say summarizing the enneagram from last time. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a short overview of it. And this time I'm going to talk about some more advanced aspects of the Enneagram, which are the wings, the arrows and then what's called the um the instinctual drives or the subtypes so i'll put this back up on the screen again and um let me just make sure you can all see that okay um so you can see there are arrows and um well i'll start with the wings so so you know there's the numbers and the numbers basically this is where it all starts is with nine and then it's kind of a a symmetrical shaped um, diagram and each type has the types next to it on the circle and that's called the wings so if one And there is a free Enneagram assessment that you can take online if you're interested in this from Rizzo and Hudson. It's on their website. There's also a version that I think is $12 or $13. um, And it gives you your top ones. And then, you know, you can do a little research on there to see what feels right. And just try it on. It's not the test isn't so much like imposing itself on you. It's more just helping you narrow down what the top ones might be for you, and then you can kind of try those on. Um, and then there's wings. So, like, if somebody say their Enneatype is is three, which is um, the achiever or the performer, uh, they the, there's the two to the one side, which is the helper or the giver, and there's the four to the other side, which is the the romantic or the you know the creative. Um, and so a person can have one or both wings. And it kind of flavors what that person's enneotype is like, like so in the group that I was have been in with Sandra, um, which is really a diamond approach group. But at the beginning, we did a lot of work with the Enneagram, we would get into groups and then report out on different exercises. So you know, I would be with the other people in my group, enneotype group. And the other groups would be together and then they report out and over the years I've gotten to know these people really well as well as other people with my enneatype and it was really interesting you can see how people with different wings they they show up differently and of course you know everybody with the same enneatype isn't a cookie cutter of each other. But this is one of, even if they have the same wings, but it's one of the ways that you can sort of see um, how how different people with the same enneatype show up differently and the flavors are really different. So for example, a person who's an achiever, but has a real creative side, then they lean there would be different than a person who's basically the achiever and they have more of a helper side where they're you know they're focused on you know doing things that support others development those are you know those are sort of two different flavors of that particular enneotype. and sometimes we can see that we have a little bit of each of the wings so if you decide to work with the enneagram this is one thing that you can sort of be curious about too is how is how is that wing affecting your core the core of your enneatype and then there is the um, there are the arrows so you can see like I'll use I'll use two for this example this is two oh, there's two um, So you can see there's an arrow going towards two from four and then there's an arrow going from two to eight. So that is called there. So each enneatype has what's known as the heart point and the stress point. And the heart point of the enneagram is, when a person is fairly high functioning or when they're in a relaxed place with themselves, they go, they can sort of incline in a way to their heart point. And it can be a really um, important healing for that person's um, psyche to be able to relax into the heart point because technically, the heart point is also known as the, um, the, the soul child. So it's a lot of the things from the heart point were not necessarily reinforced in our childhood. And that was part of what pushed us into, the, into our core enneotype. And then when we're under stress, we can go to what's known as the stress point. And we kind of take on some of the least desirable traits of that, of that any and use them as a way to defend ourselves if we're under stress. So this can explain how somebody like the two, which is the helper, or the giver, their stress point is called the protector or, you know, there's other names for the eight, but the eight is a very, um, very robust kind of, um, can be, a fairly dominant type. And so to see somebody who's normally a giver go there, it can be really shocking for the people around them. But when you know the Enneagram, it can really explain why somebody would go into a behavior that seems so out of character. It's because it's like their backup style that they will only call upon if they're really stressed, but it's kind of there in the background if they need it. So part part of how we use these as a spiritual, you know, for our spiritual unfoldment is that we we have like lines. We have lines to these two types that can really, if we learn how to work with and own that, it can really give us a lot of, um, it, it can help us work through a lot of our personality material, actually. A lot of our shadow stuff that we normally either wouldn't have access to or we we may feel that it's not characteristic of us so we don't really work it or we may even be embarrassed by some of these things. So using the Enneagram can be a shortcut to really uh, work some of these patterns that, that aren't as obvious as our core patterns. And then the last thing I'll talk about is what's known as the instinctual drives. And if you go and do the Rizzo-Hudson online test, there's also a second one it's, you do have to pay for it. I think it's like $15 that will help you um, tune into what your you know, number one, two, and three instinctual drives are. And this, these can be really helpful even outside of the Enneagram. This is, these are used a lot in the diamond approach. Um, and other traditions that work with energy the energy bodies. but um, basically the instinctual drives are self-preservation, which is the core drive that our, you know all animals have that and since basically our consciousness is attached to an animal body, we all have instinctual drives and a lot of Buddhism and other you know historic traditions really, used renunciation to deal with the instinctual drives because they didn't really have a lot of other tools to work with something like, you know, hatred, that just, you know, that feeling of wanting to kill someone or, or um, other, other drives. Well, I'll get, I'll get into the other two drives. But self-preservation really is about keeping myself alive and pri- prioritizing myself over others if necessary, you know. Um, or hoarding, I mean, look at what's just happened with the pandemic and how, you know, millions of people who thought they didn't hoard ended up hoarding toilet paper. People had whole closets full of toilet paper, you know, didn't know that they would resort to something like that if push came to shove. So even something like that is is a symptom of the self-preservation instinct. So we all have it we might as well admit it and then figure out, you know, how do I, how does this show up in me and how do I work with it? Um, The second drive is the sexual instinct or in the Enneagram lingo, it's known as the one-on-one drive. So um, this is, can be, you know, at a more um, animal level, the instinct to reproduce, the instinct to have sexual relations, the instinct to have offspring, the instinct to raise offspring, um, all of that is part of this drive. And it can also be seen just in people who may be more inclined to have one-on-one relationships. So the self-preservation instinct, people who have that as their main instinctual drive, um, really are put a lot of attention on things, on, you know, having enough or if they aren't, about a lot of money. It, they don't have to be people who are really focused on money but they have to have it a certain way. Even renunciates, a renunciate could actually be a self-preservation type where they're very particular and finicky maybe about having the food be just a certain way or the home be a certain way. Um, so there's a lot of attention on, on the physical you know, um, layout of life. For a self-preservation type. A one on a sexual subtype person would be really more, they'd be put a lot of energy into one-on-one relationships. It doesn't even have to be sexual, but just, you know, that that one-on-one person-to-person intimacy is very important to that subtype. And then the third is social, the social instinct or this and people. All humans have all three other animals, like all mammals have all three, but like reptiles don't have a social instinct. You know, they have their children, they don't even raise them. They, most of them, they just raise themselves. So mammals though, all have all three. And this is really the tribal instinct, the sense that I'm gonna be safer if I have a tribe. And if you look at humans in the way, you know, somebody being, um, oh, it's not excommunicated, I can't r- remember the word, but thrown out of the tribe or wolves, you look at wolves, do, wolves do this. And if you're the lone wolf out there, your chances of making it are a lot lower. And as humans, we know that if we're the odd man out and we've got 30 people looking at us and we're the one being kicked out, our chances of survival are not high, this is why Uh, the fear of public speaking is higher than the fear of death. I mean, you know, why is that? It is the social instinct. That is the only reason that we have that. So um, it doesn't have to be our top drive, but people who have this as their top drive will be very aware of, um, of the social dynamics. They may join. A lot of things, you know, like to be in larger groups like this. People who come to Dharma events a lot of times and, and like to do that have the social instinct as maybe their top, their top drive. There's a sense of enjoying being in a group, and it, Someone doesn't even have to be an extrovert. You can be an introvert and be a social, have the social instinct be your top instinct. So, um, part of what's useful about these, well, and another thing I'll say that there are are a lot of people who really have a a social phobia, like they don't like groups, they have a fear of groups, that groups have been unsafe for them. And, you know, if we're working with the instinctual drives, it's good to look at even the drives that we shy away from and how they could still be influencing us. And then in in the diamond approach, I, I think, Some of you may have heard me talking about the um, enlightenment drive. So this is a fourth drive. This isn't in, well, it is kind of in the Enneagram, but it uh, it is the drive that brings people to spiritual practice. And I was, I was talking to somebody earlier today, I had a session with someone, we were talking, she was asking, you know, why do people come to practice, do you think? And we were talking about it. And um, she, she thought it was suffering, which is a big part of where Buddhism, what Buddhism would say, but I think it's both suffering and the enlightenment drive. Because a lot of people, every human on the planet is suffering. They aren't all part of, on a spiritual path. You know, so there's some other drive that brings people to a spiritual path. Some people solve their suffering with um, substance substances. Some use um, go to therapy. you know they' are positive and not so positive ways of dealing with it. but uh, when somebody has an enlightenment drive, they're going to be pulled to look beyond just the personality and to something more, some mystery in of existence that is um, beyond our normal consensual reality and so that is the fourth drive the enlightenment drive and ultimately on the spiritual path it's possible for the enlightenment drive to basically become the predominant drive and the other three drives to be under it to be subsumed under the enlightenment drive and um and we still need those drives though we still even the Buddha had to survive. he had to eat. I mean if you look around like I would say Ramana Maharshi for those of you who know who he is, he he basically almost lost his survival instinct and they had to force him to eat at the beginning. you know so we we actually need to have a survival instinct. We need that. if we're going to have a human experience, we have to You have to keep the body going. So it's not that we're trying to get rid of these drives. That's not the idea, but it's um, more, how do we work with them in such a way that they serve rather than dominating and that we're not operating unconsciously from the drives and uh, that we are working with that as part of embodiment. I mean, to me, all of these things that I'm talking about are part of how we can work with our personality material in a more sophisticated way um, that builds on what we learn, we have in Buddhism. I, I don't think there's really anything in here that's um, counter to it. The Enneagram isn't a spiritual path. It's a tool for the spiritual path. So to me, that's why it's, it can be compatible with Buddhism. And I think I mentioned last time that in all the times I've done my individual mentoring program, when I used to do it in a group, at the end I, I would give out um, a little questionnaire on what you know what worked for you, what didn't work for you, what did, what was the most useful. And all three times, the top thing and and in this was taught samatha, vipassana, zogchen, the brown viharas, you know all these Buddhist you know, and other meditation practices. And every time, the thing that people thought was the most useful was the Enneagram. I couldn't believe it, you know? I was at first a little nervous about introducing this to Buddhists, but people just found it so helpful that, um, you know, I take a chance now. So it does, I don't feel that it's incompatible with Buddhism. And it can give us some additional ways of working with the, the things that we're finding on the cushion. And that's to me where it all starts. With Buddhism, one of the one of the many many wonderful things about Buddhism and meditation is that we don't need an enneagram assessment to tell us what our personality patterns are. All you have to do is sit down and try to do you know meditate for an hour, and you will see what patterns are taking you off of the breath or whatever your object is. So you know we have a shortcut. Um, but then what do you do with it? How are there tools to help us work with it? And, and this can be, can be one of those in my opinion. So I think I'll stop there and see if there are any questions or comments about, about this or anything I said about the Enneagram last week as well. Ted? Hi. Hi. Hi,
1: Tina. Um, Everybody. Well, since nobody else is saying anything, I will. Uh, This is a fascinating look at psychology behavior and really makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah.
1: But then I have the luxury. It feels like a luxury to me. I'm able to um, I'm pushing 70 and Basically, I can get by with no personality at all these days.
0: Uh-huh. It's very
1: easy. So this is kind of like looking back and just sort of finishing a crossword puzzle. Very <laughs> fascinating.
0: What do you, when you look back from through this lens, what, what do you notice or what do you see? Just,
1: uh, oh, identifying with everything. But to have this format to be able to actually kind of try to kind of discern where the, where the major emphases were. Uh-huh. might be a good learning experience, but like I say, um, at this point, I have nothing banked on my drives, personality, everything's pretty much socially flatlined, so, well, but that's a luxury,
0: because uh-huh. in the
1: middle of one's life, you have to pay a lot of attention to this kind of,
0: right. all yeah. your
1: interactions, your drives, your motivations, your decisions you're making, I've pretty much been through it all
0: do you have you ever looked at the Enneagram? do you have any sense of what are no, you enemy inter, type is?
1: no no you introduced me to it
0: okay uh, very interesting mm-hmm. yeah it can be it can be interesting even as a way of sort of um, having like you said some context on historical you know at a certain mm-hmm. point there's a lot a lot of freedom from the patterns but it can mm-hmm. be you know, it can be a helpful way to understand sort of that trajectory and even mm-hmm. the potentials. It's not only one of the things I love about the Enneagram is that it's not just our limitations that get spelled out, but also our potentials mm-hmm. and how those evolve. Mm-hmm so you know it for where it sounds like you're at, that could be that could be interesting to look at as well yeah. i mean they're like it, for me one of the this is in the Rizzo hudson one of the Rizzo hudson books they have levels for each any type and it's it can be pretty inspiring like yeah. you know when i look at my any type and where that can lead it feels like it feels inspiring to um just see at least through this lens, how that is framed. So, yeah, it's not just, it's not only it's only the limitations, but also the, okay. those potentials. Well, yeah. thanks,
1: Tina. I, I will miss this series of yours.
0: Mm. Well, thanks, Ted. I'm glad that you found it helpful. I, I've enjoyed doing it, yeah. Others, how about Nick?
2: Um, c- conventional psychology, of course, also has various measures in, in terms of personality like um, uh, sociability, aggressiveness, and neuroticism, and, and, and other things. Um, how uh, <clears throat> would you compare the, the use of the neograms to those traditional uh, framings? You uh, and, and In what ways is it is it better and in, in what ways are the traditional framings, could they be just as good um, if used properly and, and, and what do Enneagrams add?
0: Yeah, yeah, That's, it, it's interesting you bring that up because I use for many years, decades really in the business world, I use the Myers-Briggs. Uh, have you ever heard of the, the Myers-Briggs? Yeah, it's the most widely used um, personality instrument in business in the world, it's, you know, very widely used. And there's a lot of correlations that have been done by some of the Enneagram people with the Myers-Briggs and different enneotypes. I actually have a chart in one of my books that shows, you know, the correlation, which I use this all the time because I'm working with people constantly one-on-one and whether I got their results or not, I'm always going, oh yeah, I think they're this or that in my mind. And it helps me, it gives me a shortcut we're helping people, you know. So the Myers-Briggs, um, as an example, what's different is that none of those are designed as a spiritual tool. That is the main difference is the Enneagram was originally designed as a spiritual tool to help us, to help us be liberated from the ego self and return to our deeper nature. That's what it is, was for in its original design. It's gotten distorted over the years, in my opinion, but um, the others were strictly designed as psychological tools. I think it's still, those are extremely helpful. Um, those aren't like using something like the Myers-Briggs. You aren't necessarily trying to, I mean, the, the theory is that your type doesn't change. You can become more skillful and more free and less entrenched. But um, so it's not so much about, it doesn't have necessarily like a Buddhist lens of being be more free from your egoic patterning. So that to me would be one of the differences. When you talk about like the big five personality traits that are often measured for you know, mental health and things, um, Again, I think all of these, when I would do, I used to do 360 degree feedback on executives where they would have 10 people or 20 people that work for them and our peers and their boss all give extensive feedback on them. And I would debrief these things with people. So you can imagine what that was like. Um, But I would also use the Enneagram and other things. And um, they're all useful. They are all, all of the instruments out there that I used at least, which were all psychologically validated. They're like, I like to think of it as taking a picture. Like if I, you know, if you were to go out into a park and somebody you knew was to take 20 pictures of you from different angles and so on, all of those pictures, if somebody was to look at them, they're all, they're all of you. They aren't of somebody else but you may look wildly different in these pictures. Some may be very flattering. Some may be very unflattering. Some may barely look like you. Some may be like, yeah, that's what I really look like, but they're still all you. They're not someone else. So that's how I see these things is that they're, they're all, especially the psychological instruments because they're all looking at something different and they can all be really helpful in gaining insight into ourselves. I've had, you know, I've done these on so many people and I've taught them that I've probably done at least 15 different instruments, maybe 20. And because I had to do them on myself in order to do them for other people. And I found all of them had some insightful things to um, for me to learn about myself.
2: Thanks, so the Enneagram originated as a tool for spiritual development.
0: It did. It was specifically for um for the spiritual path and for you know looking at how we turn away, how each eniotype turns away from our deeper nature and how to shorten that trip back. Basically, that's really what it's for. So that way it's different than any other tool I know of. Thank you. Other, other questions or comments? Have any of you used the Enneagram? I'm just curious if, if any of you have used it or know your Enneotype or have worked with it? Nobody? Karen, you have? I, I haven't, but I
3: would, my question is, would, would you consider in the future doing a group
0: I have thought about it. I thought about doing a, a group on the Enneagram for Buddhists and I have I have a, a good friend who's an Enneagram teacher. I know a bunch of Enneagram teachers because a lot of them are in Sandra's group actually. So I know them quite well, um, but yeah, I thought about it. Is that sure. something you would be interested in?
3: I think it sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah it it's been really useful and you know, I'm still learning things about myself and others using the enneagram after working with it for 20 years. Mm. So, and every every partner I've had, all of my close friends, we all know the enneagram. We all talk about it. I mean, regularly it enters our conversation and mm-hmm. trying to understand human dynamics or ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I thought about it, or maybe a day long. That would be an easy way to you know, get a sense if there's enough interest out there in it. But I'd be doing it as the anagram for Buddha, so really putting a Buddhist lens on it. How does, is anyone else interested in something like that? I would be. Okay, yeah, well, I, I'll think about it. I mean, it, that's, it's certainly, um, a possibility of doing you know I'd have to there'd have to be enough commitment to do a series but to do a day long that would at least um, you know let me see if there's interest and for those who are interested it would give you a kind of a a little bit of a deeper dive into it.
3: Hi Tina I've I've used the Enneagram quite a bit okay. in my
0: Oh that's right you have Terry yeah
3: I found it really beneficial in terms of working with um, not only myself, the dynamics in my family structure really helped me to communicate with people um, based on the way they, they get stressed, the way that they um, just having a sense of how they're going to interact in a situation where I would respond a certain way. If I was stressed, they respond a certain way when they're stressed and having an understanding of that. Um, I was also drawn into Riso Hudson. In the beginning of his book, he had something along the lines of um, to wear the personality more lightly. <laughs> and that's something that I was really drawn to um, years and years ago. So, um, yeah, I find it very val- valuable because I see where my awareness gets stuck, mm-hmm. where um, I get fixated and what what can free me into... The thinning of the knee, really. So it really helps tease out that strand. Yeah, very beneficial.
0: Yeah, yeah, the fixations, that's a common term in Enneagram language is, you know, what is the fixation that each type is sort of always seeing the world through and just keeps coming back to over and over in terms of solving, like, how am I going to get safe? Or how do I feel unsafe? You know, going back to that self-preservation instinct. Yeah. And you were talking about understanding others. I use this all the time. And, you know, when I worked in the business world, I didn't teach it, but I was using it, my coaching. And like, for example, I'm still right now working with a few. I just have a few clients left that I'm doing coaching with. One I've been working with for five years as CEO and a few of her executive team. And she had a really high performing, wonderful one of her team. And, um, but he had some anger management issues. And so she asked me to work with him. And, you know, I, I said, as I always do, only if he wants to, because, you know, I don't wanna be forced on anyone. And, you know, she really wasn't sure whether he would be able to integrate into the team in a way that worked for everybody and him. And, but it was through the Enneagram that I helped her understand what was going on with him once I really knew him and him also. And he's basically almost like saved the company. I mean, he's in charge of sales. So, and they are, they're doing this whole digital transformation. That was very risky. And because he was able to stay there, he's happy. The company's successful, she's happy that his teammates enjoy working with him, And um, and a big part of that was the Enneagram. So, you know, it, it really can't, because, you, you know, our tendency is to, to, of course, put what makes sense to us onto others. And if they're not doing that, it's like unintelligible. Why would they do it? Or even if we, especially if it's really different But if we can see things through that lens, it can just make the whole thing very, um, take the energy off of a lot of our own and others, um, the human side of the equation. Yeah, thanks, Terry. Okay, well, we're just about out of time here, but, I hope this has been a a helpful peek into the Enneagram as well as uh, this series on embodiment of looking at how do we work with other personality, work with ourselves and our practice off the cushion and have that be as seamless as possible so that we're we're, um, living what we've experienced in our in our on the cushion life and we're also working with our off the cushion life to gain freedom there that we can then reap the benefits of on the cushion because then we're not as we're not as caught up in in um, a lot of regret or remorse or or wishes of things to be different in our in our day-to-day lives okay well good to be with you all and many blessings good night